Welcome to the Deep End by On Deck, a podcast for visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. There was a hailing of technology in the beginning days where the tech press was cheerleading. And they believed in these companies because they were disrupting the old institutions. Banking, media, whatever, finance, you know, all these institutions that real estate, taxis, right, that had been sort of unchecked and became like hostile to people because of their their stance as these entrenched incumbents. And so to cheerlead tech was essentially to be for the little guy and to try to push back against these institutions. Uh, And I think that people lost sight of that and they thought the idea was only to tell these like one-sided narratives about why tech was great, you know, and then as that was happening, tech became the big guy. On Deck is where ambitious people worldwide go to start companies, find their next roles, and invest in their careers. The Deep End invites the founders, operators, and investors from the On Deck community and beyond to turn their experiences into the ideas others need to start their own odysseys. Joining me in the Deep End today is Alex Kantrowitz. Alex is a reporter who contributes to CNBC, hosts the Big Technology Podcast, and writes the Big Technology Newsletter, which includes reports and analysis on companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Apple. Alex is an independent reporter with a background working at media publications like BuzzFeed and is optimistic about the impact of tech on the world. As such, he occupies a unique vantage point as a member of both tech and media, two groups that don't always get along. Our discussion explores this dynamic by diving into how the relationship between tech and media evolved over time and resurfacing some of the more overlooked reasons why media coverage of tech has soured. We also explore the state of tech media today in a world where many companies are attempting to tell their own stories and why it's harder to do this than most companies realize. We also discuss the business of content creation. Alex is a big advocate in building quality relationships with an audience that keeps them coming back as a healthy way to make a living as a creator and questions the conventional wisdom of advertising being an inherently evil revenue model. Alex is a multifaceted person, so we cover a lot of ground. Everything from why the inside story of Elon Musk making his bid for Twitter will make a great TV series one day, to the state of the market, to how Twitter destroyed Vine by refusing to pay creators. It's a great episode for anyone interested in getting a bird's eye view of tech and media today. Let's dive in. Alex Kantoritz, welcome to The Deep End. Thank you, Marshall. I'm a fan of the show, and it's great to be here with you. Yeah, great to be with you, too. A, I've had you on a bunch of realignment episodes, and this is the first time I've ever properly pronounced mm-hmm. your name. I tend to smush it, Kantrowitz. So this is very exciting. So you are a reporter. You host the Big Technology Podcast. You write the Big Technology Newsletter, and you are a contributor to CNBC. Is that the full stack that you would describe yourself as a reporter right now? Absolutely, yeah, that's it. Okay, so this is going to be very, it's going to be a random episode since we know each mm-hmm. other. I just want to throw a bunch of things to you. So right now, I'm sure you've noticed that we are in the era of the high production streaming service tech story. You've got the Theranos story, you've got we WeWork, and you, of course, have Uber. Do you think... A, which of those is your favorite as a tech reporter? 
I can't watch them. I can't watch them. I can't watch Silicon Valley. Um, they're all too close to home. And, you know, it, it, when you've lived in the bubble for so long, like when you kick back and turn on the TV, um, watching more tech stuff, at least from my perspective, is too much. So, you know, big into Squid Game. Um, I've seen some great... Da- I had COVID at the end of the year and saw some great dating shows on Netflix. But um, beyond that, I haven't gotten into these shows about um, about the tech, the tech world. Um, that said, I hope they do really well. Uh, because one day I'd like to write something and maybe turn that into TV. And, you know, the people who are out there uh, making these shows are setting the precedent for the rest of us. But yeah, I haven't gotten into these shows yet. You know, when you put it that way, it makes total sense. It's why, for example, I don't watch any politics shows. I don't mm-hmm. watch any news about news shows in terms of drama. <laughs> so I totally get that. So here's the question then. To your point about wanting to tell these sort of stories, you actually previously did a deal with Vox slash Recode. So you were doing a narrative scripted podcast. You've been covering the Valley, A, at BuzzFeed before you went independent, but you've done basically two years of stories since basically COVID. Of what you've covered so far, what do you think is the story that you think could make a TV show that gets you a massive streaming deal someday? <laughs> well, Not Elon, even you personally. Yeah. So separate you. So what's, yeah. what, what, what is an example of a story that you want to do? I mean, Elon Musk, the inside story of Elon Musk making this bid for Twitter, and it's not even over. So I think that that is the most dramatic story that um, has emerged in, the, in terms of the companies that I cover in the past two years. It, especially if you could take a little creative license, you know, you could really end up writing some amazing plot points. I mean, just think about it. So Jack Dorsey was the CEO like a minute ago. He gets pushed out by an activist investor pretty much, leaves the company, puts it in the hands of this guy, Parag Agarwal. And basically, things are calm for about 30 seconds until Elon gets involved with the backing of Jack and Parag. And then Elon, you know, first wants to take this board seat and then says, actually, you know, they, they, they push back on him. I, mean, I don't even know what happened there. I'm, I'm still working to figure out why he didn't end up taking the board seat. Perhaps he didn't think it was influential enough. He's out. And then he makes an offer for the company and says he doesn't have faith in management. Right, which is the management that Jack Dorsey put into place. And Jack then goes and says that Elon Musk is the singular solution that can help Twitter uh, come to, you know, f- fulfill its promise and backs him while the CEO is still sitting there. The board says, we don't want you to buy the company. And the board says, we do want you to buy the company. And we still have potentially another five and a half months until this deal closes. And now Elon might want to take it public again after taking it private. It is an insane story with amazing characters, with drama, with backstabbing, and with consequence. And I feel like that is actually what would make an amazing show. Did you ever watch The Social Network? I did. That I watched a couple times. What made this, because this conversation keeps happening, and you, a lot of, uh, let's say, people in the tech audience are not happy with the newest slate of shows. I think there's a lot of you know tech versus media dynamics playing out there. But what made The Social Network work? From your perspective, every the one thing everyone agrees on, whether you like Facebook or not, that movie works. Like, what makes you think it works as a storyteller? Justin Timberlake. I oh, know, I'm kidding. Fine. Justin Timberlake was <laughs> there's great. Something in that that. Movie. There's something to that. There's something to that. I maybe that's you know. There's truth to every joke. Look, I think that um, two things. First of all, Mark Zuckerberg is an extremely compelling character. You can't. I mean, what three point something billion people use Facebook products every month. So there's, we, we all have a relationship with Mark Zuckerberg, whether we like it or not. 
And I would say probably a good chunk of those three point something billion. Um, and I would say I would say probably almost all of your users have an opinion about him. And he is he is a unique individual. And I just happen to think that he's a great character. And so watching his plotting, um, you know, him like taking the idea and running with it and being and being sort of unapologetic about doing it, like what, what great movies have, you know, a good setup and uh, and basically run with conflict the entire movie. And then they have an interesting resolution. And like the setup is amazing, right? Har- Harvard dorm setting, right? You have this, you know, nerd boy King Zuckerberg. There's conflict all the way through. And within the conflict, there's also this amazing amount of growth that all of us experienced when we got onto the platform. And resolution, we're still living in it. So I think it's a terrific story. The thing that comes through during these debates about tech and media is that there's a lot of emphasis in my side of the world on tech media not telling these exciting, inspirational stories. Once again, there's a lot of folks who you could be a total normie and watch the social network and be like, oh man, like these guys are monsters. This is terrible. But a lot of people I know in the Valley actually watched that movie and then got off the next flight to Palo Alto. So like, w- w- what do you think about this argument about whether there are positive stories to be told that aren't just purely nitpicky or this bad thing happened? How do you think about that debate? There's definitely positive stories to be told. I have an idea of why we've gone, why like we, why the press has gone largely to, um, more critical stories. There was a hailing of technology in the beginning days where the tech press was cheerleading and they believed in these companies because they were disrupting the old institutions, banking, media, whatever, finance. Well, banking is finance, but you know, all these institutions that real estate taxis, right. That had been sort of unchecked and became like hostile to people because of their their stance as these entrenched incumbents. And so to cheerlead tech was essentially to be for the little guy and to try to push back against these institutions. Uh, and I think that people lost sight of that and they thought the idea was only to tell these like one-sided narratives about why tech was great. you know. And then as that was happening, tech became the big guy. You know, the five biggest companies in the US are all technology companies. Right? You had Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft making up more than 25% of the S&P 500 for a good amount of time. You had Uber and Lyft for a while kicking the crap out of taxi companies. You had um, Twitter uh, and, you know, let's go back to Facebook, Google, you know, to basically, um, you know, doing some good for media companies, but also a lot of harm. And when people started to come to the realization that this, that these were, they, these companies had become the new kings um, the tech press felt like it got caught with its pants down. And I think that like, as is natural, that the, the um, journalists will look at power and try to ask questions about power. And now tech tech was fighting power. Now tech is the power. So I think you see, you see a much more of a tendency to, to, um, to criticize those things than there used, than there used to be to applaud. Um, another thing is that these companies think about like Facebook, connect the world, Twitter, you know, let you know what's happening right now. The global consciousness, as Jack Dorsey just called it, Amazon, you know, convenience to customers, um, you know, Apple, Apple's not just a phone company. Apple is a heal the world company. They all have this messianic framing. And I think a lot of that came from when they were the little guy fighting against the big guy, you know, Apple famously with, I mean, the, 
compute the the 1984 commercial uh, for Apple, where someone throws this hammer into the you know the big in- incumbents, and that's supposed to resemble Apple. Um, they they had promised something better, and in some ways they have been better, but in many ways they've just taken along the the same path that that powerful institutions have. And you, you know, there's a big argument to be made that they haven't lived up to their ideals. Lastly. Um, part of this is due to the fact that tech and power, tech, tech led to changes um, that, that transformed the way uh, stories are told about companies. So when it used to be that, that we didn't really have like a, an ability to easily publish online, you would have to have um, uh, magazines like a fast company, for instance, that would glorify startups because who else was going to do that? Now the startups have all hired their own writers and they're telling these stories about themselves. So the place for people to lionize, for journalists to lionize these companies has been replaced actually by the company's own internal press departments themselves. And you add that all up together and you get this situation where people are like, ah, the tech press is only negative and they hate us and us versus the tech press. And I think it's true that in some areas, the tech press has gone overboard in its criticism and has not been thoughtful. And I'm trying to provide an alternative to that um, in the stuff that I do. However, like I think this this complaint is also um, ignorant of the reality and the, the, the reality and the fact is that the reality has changed. I really like your articulation of the current dynamic is about specialization. One thing I would push on, though, and I'm curious what you think about this and definitely definitely don't name any names here when it comes to how specific companies have handled their internal press. Obviously, like we're doing this with an on deck, so I'm not going to, you know, cast stones, but I want to talk about the idea of it. My skepticism of that approach has always been the domineering or dominant story of our moment is a lack of trust in basically anybody. So it's true that people don't trust the New York Times, they don't trust CNN or trust the media, but they also don't trust companies. So I, I just, I, what I'm skeptical of is this idea that a company writes this story about how they're going to do X, Y, and Z. I don't see a company being able to convince people of that story. And I think what the press laudatory stories did tell, they, they, they serve this mediating role. In, in, in that form or fashion. So I'm curious how you're seeing companies successfully. I guess I made this hard by saying don't name any names, but actually if we're being positive mm-hmm. here, what, what, what's an example of a company doing a good job of telling the story of themselves in a world where people are skeptical of anyone saying anything? So I don't think that companies have done a good job doing this. I think it's first of all tough to write anything that's interesting. Um, and people are like, you see it all the time that the companies are like, I'm going to start a website, a news website. And, you know, we're going to finally bring back, um, you know, the good coverage of our company and industry. And then they realize they have to like actually write and edit stories. And that's actually a lot harder they imagine than they imagine. And they, they're slow or they shut down or lose a lot of money or all the above. So I I think that's difficult. Um, I, I would just say that, that what's happened is that because, you know, even this mediocre presence of, you know, um, companies telling their own stories has emerged. Like it, it has definitely like, it's, it's, it's a poor product, but it has taken the marketplace for those stories. Now, look, I think there is an opening. If someone was going to start a new publication and like, we're going to like write about the good things that tech companies are doing and not do it like funded by tech, but try to make a business out of it. Oh, there's definitely an opening for, for that. You could have an amazing conference business uh, 
but, Ta- ex- but ex- ex- yet- explain that well because mm-hmm. there's people in the yeah. audience who are interested in that Ta- actually mm-hmm. ex- explain how that business would work right what what what, what yeah. the conference whether you I mean it's it. a little cynical but um if you wanted to build a good media business you could just like write really nice uh things about tech companies write them well like write good features about them and it would build a halo around your your media brand and companies would want to be featured in it because if you did a good job writing about their competitor you'd probably do a good job writing about them and everybody has a great look look i'm an entrepreneur so i know when you start a company you have a great story i mean every company has a great story behind it Um, it takes work and finding a market and being able to sustain a business is amazing and so there are all these stories that sort of get lost and then when i'm talking about like the way so how are you going to make money off of that well yeah you do a conference where you bring the tech industry together uh, you could probably do this for any industry, really. And, you know, you you do like a series of like half serious panels where you say, well, how did you do that? You know, everybody applauds. And then you get, a you know, companies that are on the rise, which have a lot of VC money to sponsor that conference. Have a and, sick happy hour, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Join us. Yeah, join us for happy hour with this crypto company that just raised $40 million on a $1 billion valuation. And um, and, and it would be, it'd be great business. So maybe someone should go start that. I don't know. I mean, look, I, I think that like journalism, people are people have all these opinions on journalism. Ultimately, I think that we need many forms of journalism. We need the critical journalism, but we also need journalism that empowers people with information and shares stories that, that inspire. And so, you know, people from the purest side were probably listening to me talk about this business idea. And are like, oh, betrayal to like the journalism class. But it's not either or. It's this and. And I think that, you know, it, it, what the, the end of the day, the question is, are you, are you serving the audience? Are you serving the reader? Um, and is that making the world a better place because of it? And I think you can do it. And, and I think to your point, you know, jokes aside, what, what makes this articulation you're giving not just be purely, you know, cynical is the fact that your claim with this media company is not... This is all there is. This is yeah. the end all be all. Um, you don't, I mean, there are definitely people who I think would, you know, uh, smoke a little too much uh, of what's around and like be that aggressive. But there is like just a moderate version of this, which is like, look, there's a pendulum. It's important to have skepticism and criticism. But all of us, I think, could cite examples of reading an article that really like transformed how they see the tech industry and how inspiring that was. You know, like I, you know, Tad Friend at the New Yorker did really good profiles of like Mark Andreessen. Um, I remember it from like 2015. It was just sad. I was like, man, that was good. You know, like um, software is eating the world, another Mark Andreessen piece in the Wall Street Journal. Like th- that's a positive piece and a lot of folks will reference that. So I, I think that's th- that's interesting. Um, we're speaking about media, so I'll ask you a media question. We're at this weird really weird space for our industry. I'm um, speaking as not on deck Marshall, but realignment breaking points Marshall, which is, you know, BuzzFeed, obviously you, know, you, you work there, but the, you know, the spacking IPO process for all of these media companies from the 2010s has not been, I think, a particularly impressive laudatory feature. A lot of the BuzzFeed news department's getting laid off. Um, Vice is going to have to write down its valuation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then CNN Plus, clonks out in less than a month. So legacies in this weird space. At the same time, my self-aware critique would be, I think independent media has really lagged 
in terms of its overall impact relative to the resources of what media companies should be doing. So I think right now, like the New York Times is just crushing it. And so much of what media was supposed to do in the 2010s, digital media was replaced the Times and it's stodgy. So how, that, that's my assessment of where it is. I think we're just at this weird halfway point. How, how would you assess the playing field when it comes to this uh, state of the media bit? Yeah, I think I'm a little more optimistic. Um, I would say, first of all, you had a group of digital media companies who every company that wants to raise money needs a mission and a vision, right? Like you need to be able to sell investors on something. And so if you're going to go out and raise at a, like a really high valuation, of course, you have to put the biggest, you know, animals in, 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 the, in your scope. And that's, that was the New York Times saying, all right, we're going to beat the New York Times because we need your money, right? And that was always an unrealistic um, expectation. Um, you're not going to be better than the New York Times with one-tenth of the uh, editorial staff and one-tenth of the business staff. You're just not going to make an innovation that way. Now, I will say this also came into, into play when the New York Times was struggling. So I think comparing to old New York Times, yes, but the New York Times got its act together. It's filled with really smart people. You got to hand it to it. That business um, has taken off. And then also something that people probably didn't anticipate was Trump which the Trump era definitely delivered, um, you know, massive numbers of subscriptions to the Times, which then hired lots of journalists and lots of business people. And then it was sort of like, and then did better work. Um, well, yeah, I, I, well, we could talk about their politics, but overall, I think, I still think it's a good paper. And, um, and, uh, and, and then got more people to subscribe. I'm a happy New York Times subscriber. I don't agree with everything they write. Um, I mean, I'm also a Wall Street Journal subscriber. I'm happy there too. Um, but like the time has made it worth it to pay for news. Now, the, the, the other group that you were talking about, my former employer, Buzzfeed, like the Vox media folks, um, vice, um, you know, they're still kicking, but they also went, you know, they've hit some, some hard times. And I think that, that, that happened for a few reasons. One is because and Ben Smith, who used to be, um, you know, the editor in chief of Buzzfeed wrote about this actually in his first column when he went to the New York times. Basically, like there used to be, it used to be a wide open media world. And then, you know, these, these papers like the Times and the Journal and the Washington Post consolidated power. And then it just became a winners and losers game. And it became really hard, much more uh, harder to play in the middle. And also, I would say probably the digital media companies raised too much money and set expectations way too high. And it's really hard to meet those. So, um, and then finally, individual media, right? That's the independent media, the stuff that I'm doing, you know, that's happening on Substack, the stuff that you and Sagar are doing. Um, I don't know, like anyone who expected that stuff to go toe to toe with, I never expected it to go toe to toe with legacy media. Um, what did I, you expect? I, I expected basically what we're seeing today. I mean, anyone with like a grasp of business knows that these are tough businesses to build. And, um, and so, like, I think that they have a ton of potential and we're seeing some really good stuff come out of independent media right now. But we're 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 in like the the very, very beginning of this. Like two years ago, no one was talking about Substack. I wrote about Substack for the first time in 2019, met three dudes hanging out in an apartment around the corner from me um, who were like, we think that people will pay for emails. And I'm like, OK, you know, but they're like, here are our numbers. And I was like, oh, maybe this actually you know can be something. But it's so early on, and I think a lot of a lot of people want to see how how it looks, um, you know what what the business model is. Like I don't even do paid subscriptions, so you know I'm trying different things out. But I think to jump, why why, why, why 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 don't you? 
do paid subscriptions. Because for, yeah. for a quick thing for, for, for mm-hmm. listeners, so much of the Substack, Substack is a very ideological mm-hmm. company. And so much of their pitch is that ad-based media produces a weaker product than subscription-based product than subscription-based media. So it's interesting that you're successfully on their platform, but not doing subs. So like, why aren't you Mm -hmm. using subs? Well, I would say it's also ideological. I have an idea that, um, that information should be free. And when I write something, I want the maximum amount of people to be able to read it. And advertising enables me to do that. And I would say I, the bone I have to pick with Substack's argument is that they say ads are bad. Ads are bad incentive. I think trying to do ads on volume for social media is bad incentive. But I think you could do targeted ads to a dedicated audience. Can you explain um, what ads at volume of social media? What does that mean? Yeah, sorry. Um, so I'll, I'll just talk about like what I, what, okay, well, I'll just say like I used to write for the web, right? Write for social media audiences. That was the whole idea at BuzzFeed. So essentially like, and there was, of course, like we never heard from the business side, like, oh, you needed, you know, get more traffic. It happens in some places, never happened at BuzzFeed. So there was no big chart with your, with your numbers. Because some people did that, that That wasn't Yeah, Gawker had that. We never had that. I mean, basically like you, well, that's not true. We did sometimes get emails with traffic. Um, But the, basically the idea is you wanted to write impactful stories that would spread on Facebook and Twitter and help grow the audience. But the thing is. Something, you know, something goes viral on Twitter and someone clicks in, they go, they're not your audience. They were traffic. And I, I just don't, I don't think it's healthy because eventually in order to reach those people, you have to, you know, um, make them mad, you know, make, or make them super passionate. Um, but often making people super passionate involves making them mad or play to their identities. I just don't think that's a healthy way to do media. Um, I think a healthy way to do media is to build a relationship with an audience and email and podcasts are amazing for that because, you know, if this podcast sucks, then, you know, good luck getting people to, to come back next week. And if this podcast is great, well, then people will probably come back. So there's a, a premium on quality and premium on respecting the reader and the listener, which I think is amazing with email and podcasts. That's why I'm in those businesses. And I think that this idea that ads are bad is misplaced. You know, I think subscriptions can generate just as, you know, well, similarly negative um, incentives. But I do think that, um, you know, as long as you're in email and as long as you're in podcasts, things that people ask for versus things that you push to them, you're going to be incentivized to do better work. So I'll just just to, to wrap up the, the last point. I think that, that what we're seeing in independent media right now through subscription, through podcasting is amazing. I think it only has room to grow um, and we're going to see lots of growth and people will will jump and and do different things, things that I, you know, you and I haven't thought of. And it's just going to be cool to watch. Like this is now a category. It wasn't two years ago. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So you refer to yourself as an entrepreneur earlier in the episode. And that's, that's a key thing that you need to do when you go independent. There are a lot of folks in our business who are incredible at editorial. They're great interviewers. They're great writers, but they aren't going to be people who anyone would want running a business. I think a key thing that you've told me in the past is that you actually worked on the business side before mm-hmm. everything. So it's not as if you're coming completely tabula rasa, but can you just talk about that transition from being a person writing for social to running a business that's based around yourself? Like that's just a, this has been a, people have written about this. Like there are lots of folks like Charlie Rozelle at the, the Atlantic, you know, like he, he went independent from the New York Times. He tried Galaxy Brain. He's like, hey, look, this isn't for me. He went back um, and he's back in that space. Like, how, how, how has this been for you? 
I mean, it has been unbelievable. It's been super fun. Um, but you have to you have to love in order to do it. You have to really love being an entrepreneur. And I really take your point that a lot of people who work in editorial do not love being entrepreneurs. So that's why, like, I don't think that the New York Times will ever be or like we're using this New York Times as like an example. New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think they're ever going to be in trouble from the type of people who do work like I do. I mean, we'll probably kick their butts eventually, like trying to, you know, we'll probably get better stories and stuff like that. But like there's always going to be a group of journalists who just don't want to take the risk. Can I say so, one thing? Because I want to yes. get your response to this. Uh-huh. Here's what the New York Times will be threatened by. Because mm-hmm. you're being very, because like, I'm trying to unpack this for listeners. You said journalists, op-ed writers who are dramatically underpaid. That mm-hmm. is who the New York Times will lose. And by the New York Times, we mean just like the general broad mainstream media. So Andrew mm-hmm. Sullivan, he's making 400K. Well, he makes over a million now, right? Like Matt Iglesias, same category. So I think what was true is the New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, New York Magazine, they were underpaying opinion writers relative to how much people were willing to pay for them. But that's different than the, the dynamics with the journalist. Correct. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And also like with people like Andrew and people like uh, Iglesias, like they they produce a, a level of work that's so good or so well-liked by, by so many readers that they build communities. I mean, they build like adherence to people who, and, and, and by the way, you know, this is all roundabout ways of me saying what they have are audiences. People who have audiences are going to be the people that do really well in this world. And, you know, again, like they're, you know, they, they'll be writing on a, you know, on a, on a platform, like a mainstream platform, but they're going to have dedicated readers that come back week after week after week and read what they have to write. And oftentimes there's people who will write with the point of view, but it doesn't always have to be. Did you, did you have dedicated readers at BuzzFeed? I mean, I had, I, I definitely had people who were like reading my stuff, um, but it was, it was small, smaller than I have today. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's because, you know, and I love being a reporter at BuzzFeed. It was super fun and I learned a ton and it was fearless too, which was great. It was like, I'm like, they have four reporters on it. They're like, go get the story and don't come back to me until you have it. Like, that's really the attitude you need to have. You can never feel small in these roles if you're actually going to want to compete. And I've taken that with me. Um, but that that being said, like, so my audience has grown now because back then I had to be a part of a system. So this news is breaking, go cover it. This news is breaking, go cover it. This is breaking, go cover it. What big story do you have for me today? It wasn't cohesive. It wasn't coherent. It was for the publication. It wasn't for the individual. What I have now is the ability to assign myself stories I, what I have now is the ability to actually be cohesive and coherent of a point of, and, and have topics that people can come back to me and know I'm going to weigh in on and want to come in here like my perspective and they want to come here like the way that I report these things. So um, it's it's much easier to drive like your, you know, your own ship on that front. And I think that is really conducive to actually like building an audience. Yeah. And something I'm curious about. I want to get to the the last section, which is talking about tech stories. But just on your front, from a news you can use perspective, you are across so many different platforms and styles. So you're a CNBC contributor. You post on YouTube. You tweet. You write a Substack. You host a podcast. Like I, I actually struggled. You do you do TikTok? 
No, I don't do TikTok. Okay, so if if you if you if you posted TikToks, you would actually complete the trifecta. Like, it's more <laughs> of a trifecta. But yeah. but seriously, like you're you're one of the most versatile people um, in, in our space. And a lot of people who are, and I'm sure you've seen this on Twitter, founders, operators, VCs, everyone's trying to be a content mm-hmm. person now. Can you walk us through your opinions on your experiences in these different types of content? Why yeah. aren't you on TikTok? How, you know, like just those different bits. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So um, I actually like started when my, I made my way into media, like originally through broadcast stuff. Like I hosted, co-hosted a sports talk radio show on air uh at through nasa community college's radio station whpc for all those in long island um and i did that like tuesdays and thursdays 7 p.m to 9 p.m for like a couple years while i was in high school because i was like i really liked the show i called the guys up they're like yeah we could always use some more help wow one day they actually just no one showed up and like the producer looked at me and they're like are you ready to go on air and I had like two hours in the newspaper and I was like, let's do this, <laughs> which was super fun. So I always like broadcast, but I think the key is really that um, learning how to write and learning how to report underpins everything I do. Like I really needed to do that. And it was a process. And like if people are learning, want to know, like like writing is hard and writing is is like, you know, part art, but a lot of it is science. And if people want to like know how to do that, there's a book that. Uh, my editor at BuzzFeed handed me, which I thought was an insult at the time, but really helped a lot. It's called On Writing Well. Just read the first hundred pages. I promise you, you'll always write better than than you did before reading it. Taught me a ton. So I think, yeah. So it starts with for for me with the writing, um, and the writing is is nice because like it's like I get to call multiple sources that way, and then um, put what I learn into a story. So like you know, you could call ten people but get eight hundred words out of it, and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, the podcast, actually, I really started the podcast because going independent, I was worried that I wasn't going to have an excuse to speak to interesting people anymore. Like I, I knew I could email them, but I figured I had a much better chance of like getting like, you know, the guy that runs WhatsApp um, to, sp- to pick up the phone to talk to me if he knew that like that would be an episode on a podcast. And like in year one, Will Cathcart, who runs WhatsApp, came on the show. Would he have done that for my Substack? Probably not. Um and so that's kind of how I, you know, got into that world. And I think that like podcasts and newsletters are like pretty similar. Um, you know, it's again, a relationship with the audience. If this is good, you'll come back. If it sucks, you'll unsubscribe or you won't open anymore or you won't click anymore to, to listen. So those are the two, two, like the two core parts of my business. And I think they jive really well together. And sometimes like, you know, you get such an interesting interview, you write it up as the newsletter and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and everyone's happy. Um, and then, so broadcast, um, I had, I had done a little bit of broadcast, um, when I was at Buzzfeed, like I had, I remember showing up to CNBC for the first time in like 2016, talking about how, like, it was actually kind of a fun segment. It was talking about how people who post on social media were going to get paid by these platforms. Um, and like this whole idea of user generated content was a fallacy. And they're like, oh yeah, come talk to us about that. Cause I like spoke with some people and figured out like what was going to go, what was going to go down. Was that um, correct? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I, don't, think, like, explain, I don't know anything about that. Please well, uh, think expand. about, yeah. I mean, TikTok, Facebook, they all have creator funds right now. And so my theory was that making, so social media was moving to video, making video is really hard. And so therefore there's few video creators and platforms that succeed will succeed on the backs of their creators. 
and there's going to be competition for those people. So they're going to pay them. And how TikTok has a massive creator fund, Facebook has a creator fund, and you know Spotify, for instance, right, like uh, is now paying hundreds of millions of dollars for podcasts. So this really this proved even truer than I expected. And I think it will it will eventually start to look like these platforms are programming, like in the, similar to TV. And this is an mm-hmm. ideas show, so I want to get to this idea mm-hmm. that you just mentioned. You were arguing against this user-generated content. Can you explain mm-hmm. like what, what was the mm-hmm. conventional wisdom that you were pushing back on? The conventional wisdom was like, if you build it, they will come. Build, build the platform. If the platform's good enough, people will you know, post because there's enough incentive to be posting on the platform and build an audience that way. But it turns out it's really difficult to make, lar- make money from large audiences on social media. And so people, this idea that like there are endless amounts of users that will generate endless amounts of content for you and all you have to build are the pipes essentially was completely wrong. And it's actually like you build the pipes and then you fill them with really good stuff and you pay for that stuff. And then you'll probably get a long tail of people who are like, oh, I want to do that video too, or I want to use that mm-hmm. platform to try to be like them. So that's kind of what social media developed into. And here's a fun story. So Twitter, you know, Twitter, um, this was right around the time when um, Twitter had Vine. I, I was going to yeah. bring up Vine next, so go there, yeah. Please. And this is why Vine crumbled. Vine was the original TikTok, the original, um, et cetera, et cetera. It was the OG of these type of short form video platforms. And it had a very dynamic, you know, creative uh, creator group, influencer group, whatever you want to call them. And these folks are like, look at, the volume on vine not everybody's making vine videos these things are tough to make but people Mm -hmm. love watching vine videos so what are we doing making these videos making some money but not a lot and then basically were they just getting sponsorships yeah creating sponsorships like outside right correct yeah Yeah. and then being like talk about a not scalable business (laughs) exactly yeah and then they're like we're making twitter billions of dollars here what are we doing so they actually went and had a meeting with Twitter and they're like, pay us. And Twitter said no. And then that was it. They're like, all right, we're out. And they all went to Snapchat and YouTube. And they turned those places into pretty vibrant, um, you know, media places. And YouTube and Snapchat ended up paying them. So Snapchat originally ignored them, but they learned the lesson from Vine. They paid them. Now they're, and then Vine shut down. And then the, move went, the movement went to Snapchat and YouTube. And now TikTok is like, all right, we, we have all the momentum. You know, I, I don't know what the numbers. I think it's like either a hundred million or a billion, some crazy amount of money that they're paying people to make videos on the site. And I, so, yeah, so I think that social media is a lot less organic than some people think. Um, with some examples, what's interesting there is you're getting at what eventually develops into the you know creator economy thesis. I'm curious what you think of just, and I think we're crypto kind of ate the creator economy hype beast hype space. But you're also a creator yourself. So I'm just curious, like, what, what, what are your just current thoughts on, like, that trend, that dynamic? How big is the market? I mean, I was talking with some people who are serious creators, and they always laugh at the, there are 50 million creators in America. I think, no, there's not. Um, <laughs> like, this is, the, mm-hmm. this is <laughs> the, the number is nowhere near that big. Um, and you're really, like, am I creating when I post, like, an Instagram? Like, that's how, like, wide you're expanding that. So how, what do you think about the general idea? Yeah, I, look, I think that that it, it got blown out of proportion, but it's really real. Like the thing that I'm talking about, about these platforms paying people, um, they that's real. 
and they can make livings from that or they can do they can they can do advertising and make livings from that i think there's a lot of people that can do it but like the idea that there can be 50 million people making money by posting on instagram is is not true so we'll wrap with just the following question like you're you're writing and discussing these like weekly text stories like what what is so two so two questions question one is what is like the broad narrative about tech that's interesting and driving you right now hmm well i mean i like to pay attention to the markets like this is definitely my work with cnbc is definitely like cued me into this in a way that i you know was paying attention attention to before but like wasn't reading every earnings report the way i am now and the market right now is absolutely insane it's insane Every tech company you look at, if they're down 40% on the year, you're like, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, Some are down like 60, 70%. Like look at Netflix, for instance. Netflix was at like, I don't know, was 600 something dollars, uh, you know, last September, 690 maybe, something that, that high. I looked yesterday, they're under $200 per stock. So they've lost two thirds of their value. And what happens to companies when they go through changes like this? I mean, people are like, you know, we don't look at the stock price. Oh, come on. Of course they do. <laughs> and if the executives are have figured out a way to, to not do that, their employees certainly are. And their employees have been paid, a lot of them, in stock. So um, I think there are, there are you know, uh, big shifts that are going on in the tech world because of the uh, financial side of things. And they're going to continue. I mean, we're about to have the Fed raise the rate for the first, I think it's maybe the first or the second time in a long time. And that rate's going to keep going up. We might end up in a depression, no, a recession. I mean, we'll see about the depression, but we might end up in a recession. Um, we have inflation. That's crazy. Think about all the um, companies that like sell things to you through Instagram and Facebook. Like people are starting to conserve their money, like, like you know, $30 impulse purchase that you would make on Instagram. Now is a lot more consequential when the government isn't giving you a monthly check and, you know, your money is worth 8% less. So... You know, th- those companies are going to have a ton of uh, ton of trouble that way. I mean, you have the war in Ukraine that's definitely changing things um, in the global economy in ways that we're just starting to feel. So I think that that the tech world is going to be an economic story in a big way. Um, and what does that lead to? And here's one example, mm. just to bring a full circle. Elon Musk buying Twitter is a product of this economy. Twitter is its valuation dropped actually from like seventy dollars a share um, to a place where where giving them fifty four twenty is a, is um, something the board couldn't turn down, mm-hmm. right? So six months ago, Elon probably wasn't making this move. That would have cost him probably seventy eighty billion dollars. He's just going to be able to squeak by with the money that he has, unless he was like fully ready to basically leverage Tesla in order to buy Twitter. He's not quite there yet. So it creates really interesting moments and opportunities in this world. And how many tech companies are going to end up like, you know, getting a activist investor, getting acquired, getting a position by, you know, private equity. Um, It's going to be wild and it really might change like the face of the tech industry. It's very, uh, because my answer to this question is basically, and this is an obvious narrative, but just like coming down from the pandemic high, right? Like Peloton. Mm -hmm. Netflix. So, here, so here's actually, let's, let's talk about Netflix for a second um, for the final question. Uh-huh. Yeah. How do you guard yourself when you're doing this against just like conventional wisdom, right? In the sense that Netflix beats Blockbuster. 
I think so many folks did not have it in their heads that what's happening with Netflix was at all possible. Mm-hmm. Like we were just all raving about Squid Game. And people, um, there's a, I, I really like um, Puck um, and they did a good, um, Matthew Bellini did a good thing on uh, Netflix and he said that look like his thesis is if Squid Game hadn't come out in Q4, almost certainly this bad news would have happened earlier in terms of like the general just like vibe crash to use a technical term. How do you just like evaluate and look at these companies without just getting swallowed by by just like the narrative? Yeah, it's a cliche answer, but it, the way to do it is through reporting. So like, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just like posting my thoughts on the Substack and like doing monologues on the podcast, like I really try to learn from people who know a lot more than me and try to bring those ideas to the audience. So um, during like the whole meme stock and, um, you know, market run up, I mean, the market was insane last year. Insane. Um, I mean, the multiples on some of these stocks were just totally out of control and we're starting to see like the contraction now. So I would have people like Ron John Roy on, uh, on the podcast. Ron John is like one of the most astute financial analysts um, that I know. He writes a great newsletter on Substack called Margins. And Ron John's been on the show like five times. And it's just been like, <laughs> all right, Ron John, like what the heck is happening here? And like we talk a little, we talk about, sometimes we talk about like the, the nuts and bolts, like how interest rate policy leads to crazy valuations and where does money go in that situation? Um, and I think that just like, doing that, like speaking to people. And then also just like, you know, I think that a lot of people, I'm an optimist. Like I'm not, you know, sometimes like journalists are afraid to admit when they're optimists, but I'm definitely an optimist. Um, I, I, you know, I believe like we're heading in a good direction and that, the that, um, that tech is good for the world on, on the whole, but like you, you can't let your optimism cloud out reality. And like, for instance, like when you, when you see, you, you can't sometimes and I think sometimes with Netflix, people discounted the fact that the government was printing money and handing it out to people. People mm-hmm. discounted the fact that there were all these other competitors like Disney, Paramount Plus, Hulu. You know, I forgot how many I've, I've I got COVID like in December and just like signed up for all of them and then immediately unsubscribed, you know, to almost can all. I tell you my, can I tell you my yeah. fun fact for the episode? Yeah. I am a streaming service addict. <laughs> I uh, I subscribe to CNN Plus. I just got my refund. Um, I subscribed to Quibi. I broke my iPhone, and uh, a point of pride was me having with my old one the Quibi app still on. Oh, it nice. can't re-download now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I think I'm subscribed to. What am I not subscribed to? Paramount Plus. I have Peacock. I have Hulu. I, have these. I think I'm subscribed to every single one right now. Um, geez, that's. So my my actual rationalization here is Mm -hmm. I just I it's cable. Yeah. If you add up what I'm paying all together, I am paying a cable bundle, and -hmm. it means that there's just always something on. Um. So yeah. Um. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep them. Yeah. I go back and forth. Like I'll do like Netflix for a while, then I'll just like watch everything I need to. Go to HBO, watch everything I need to. Go to Showtime. You said I don't pay for I don't. Oh, there we go. I don't pay for Showtime, and Uh I don't actually pay for Netflix. Um, it's on, I'm on the family plan still. And I do, and it's weird. Like, I don't, I don't feel much of an urge to subscribe to Netflix. If my parents cut me Mm -hmm. off, I think, I think that's part of the problem, right? Like HBO Mm -hmm. max is like, I'm obsessed with HBO max now. Just like consistently. That was the CNM plus disaster, right? Like just add it as a section on, as, 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 add it as a section on CNN plus. CNN plus thing is real bad. (laughs) Just like, well, I'm sure we could talk about that for an hour, but. Holy hell. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, that's that's yeah. that's a whole other that's a whole other yeah. podcast, but people could guess our feelings. Um, right. I know Alex, it really been... uh, 
It surprised yeah. Sagar. He was astonished that it didn't work. So, yeah, no, like that's yeah. been a bad for a go. So I'm, I'm not sure. I kind of wish they. I might kind of wish they had made it like a few more months. But uh, we'll have to deal with that on the talent side. Um, Alex, this has been really great. Um, could you? Because I really like this is a podcast, and I really like your podcast. Um, started listening before we even like met. Mm-hmm. What is an episode? Because all podcasters have these episodes. What's just like an episode that people should check out? Yeah, you do. You um, do a lot. Like you're publishing every week. So like, what is mm-hmm. one that sticks out? We have we have one this week with uh, Rich Greenfield that goes into more depth. He's an analyst. He covers like media, Netflix, and all that stuff. Um, we have an episode coming out Wednesday um, that talks about like all the. Um, all the different media stocks, like we go into all the factors, inflation, uh, rate, rate being raised, Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And we just go through, go through all the, um, you know, the different, uh, yeah, different permutations there. I would say that one, check that one out. Um, I mean, there's one that, that I did last week, um, with Alex Redder, who is the, um, who was used to be the head of engineering at Twitter. And we walk through every single one of Elon Musk's proposals and i'm like all right tell me tell me pragmatically like how this would work and like can you envision them being a feasible and b advisable now uh warning to folks i i was dealing with like nasty allergies my voice in that episode is gone if you can tolerate that check it out because alex is amazing in that show that's awesome well alex speaking of amazing shows thank you for joining us on the deep end and i suggest that all of our listeners check out the big technology substack and podcast. Thanks, Marshall. Always great to talk. Really appreciate you having me here. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.